Amen. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father God, we give you great praise this morning for who you are and what you've done. How you've shown us in your word the contempt that we have shown for you, but yet the mercy and the grace that you've shown in your son to come here to seek us out, to save us, to forgive us, to cleanse us, to give us new life and a new hope. And so I pray, Lord, as we dive into your word, as we dive into Psalm 14, Father, that you would encourage us even more, that you would give us a greater understanding of the depths of your love, the depths of your faithfulness, that you give us a deep and abiding hope that will spur us on as we live life in this broken world. So, Father, help us to trust you more, spirit work among us and in us, and then use us for your purposes here in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, good morning and welcome again to River City. My name is Charlie Hogshead, one of the elders here, and glad to study Psalm 14 with you. Uh, We're going to um, continue our series in the Psalms where we see more and more of God's faithfulness to his people uh, over time. And so uh, as we get started, I'd like to uh, invite you back with me uh, to travel through time a bit uh, to my seventh grade year. in my small town of Wanamingo, Minnesota, really small school, we had about 75 kids um, in our class. And seventh grade was the first year we had like actual lockers. We had to move to classes between, uh, move to different classes um, uh, pretty regularly. And the hallway where our lockers were was not very wide. It was pretty crammed for all 75 of us. And it extended maybe from this wall to the back windows, something like that. And so it wasn't too long of a walk uh, to get your stuff and get to the next class. But for one of my classmates in particular, this was an incredibly long walk that she endured over and over and over again. Uh, Her name is Anne, and she was very shy. She was very sweet, uh, but she was very quiet. And somehow, um, at the beginning of our seventh grade year, she acquired the nickname Grease. And whenever she would walk down this hallway, all the kids would just slam up against their lockers to avoid touching her, to avoid even looking at her. And so this started early that year, and despite our teacher's best efforts to stop it, uh, it continued. And not only would she have that there uh, at school, she also was bussed in from the next town over, which was 10 miles away. So it started long before she ever got to our building. It started when she entered that bus right away. And then the bus ride home, same thing. Through no fault of her own, she was abused verbally by a bunch of punk kids over and over and over for that whole seventh grade year. So can you imagine getting off that bus, you walk home at night, knowing that in a few hours, you're going to have to get up and do it all over again. One day, this happened. Somebody yelled grease, and the kids, they slam up against their their lockers, and I could not take it anymore. I was way too frustrated, and so I slam my locker, and I walk over to her, and I look her in the eye and say, can I take you, can I walk you to your next class? Now, that's, that's actually not totally true. In fact, that's not true at all. 
I hit those lockers just like everybody else. I was glad that the heat was off of me because seventh grade, that's a tough year. You're trying to figure out who you are. You have all these other kids that are trying to figure out who they are as well. And it was a really sad scene and I just took the easy way out. I played along and I did nothing to ease her pain. So as we continue to walk through the Psalms, we've come to Psalm 14, which is written by uh, King David. And this is a community lament. This is a, a song that Israel would sing to express their shared grief and sorrow for their experiences that they had living as the people of God in this broken world. Because God's people, they've always had this very interesting relationship with the rest of the world, with the nations around them. But from the beginning, God's intent was for mankind to be a people that he made in his image, who would reflect his character and nature, a people to whom he would give identity, he'd give meaning, he would give purpose. He would be their God, they would be his people. But our first parents, they found themselves in a discussion with a serpent. And this serpent, he had a great degree of contempt for God. He messed with Adam and Eve, he tricked them, he deceived them, and his goal was to make them doubt God's goodness. And in fact, make them believe on the flip side of that, that if they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that they would be like God. They would be able to define for themselves right and wrong. They would make meaning for themselves. They would forge their identity themselves. They would, in fact, be God, or so they thought. And so this contempt that the serpent showed for God, it was passed on to Adam and Eve and then on to every single human being who's ever existed since then. Rather than seeking to, to know God, we seek to be God. But despite all that, God's plan from before time was to redeem for himself a people. A people who would experience mercy despite their contempt. A people who would experience grace. And he is recreating for himself a people who again would reflect his character and nature amidst a broken world. And now as the church, we exist to show the world God's kingdom. But as we'll see in this psalm, this is not an easy task. And so here's what I believe is the heart of this psalm for us today. We lose hope when we are devoured for being the people of God. But Jesus, he was hated and he was torn apart so that we could be made whole. And in him, we have all the righteousness and all the hope that we need to endure until he returns. And so the first point I'll focus on verses 1 through 3 this morning, where we will be encouraged to stop seeking to be God. Point 2, I'll focus on verse 4, where we'll prepare ourselves to be devoured. And then point 3, we're going to focus on verses 5 through 7, where we are encouraged as a people of God to find hope and to find gladness and joy in the salvation that we have in Christ. So let's read our passage. It's going to be on the screen. And let's let King David encourage us here this morning. Psalm 14. To the choir master of David, <clears throat> the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt there is none who does good, not even one. 
Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they, they are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Amen. First this morning, let's consider the call to stop seeking to be God. Stop seeking to be God from verses 1 through 3. David starts with, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. This is a really short, but it's a really packed sentence. And so to get to the point, let's think about it this way. Have you ever rolled your eyes at somebody? Or has somebody ever rolled their eyes at you? What are we doing when we do that? What we're doing is we're expressing from our hearts contempt. We are expressing this thought that what we've just heard or what we've just seen is completely worthless. It's not worth our time. It's not even worth considering in any way. And so what David is saying here is that the fool says in his heart, there isn't a God, and if there is one, he's not worth any of my time, he's not worth any of my consideration. And so the word for fool here in this, uh, in this passage uh, is actually Nabal, and it points us back to this uh, event in David's life that may help us understand it even better. And so as David was rising to the throne in Israel, the king at the time, Saul, uh, was threatened by David's uh, growing popularity. And so he tried to kill him. And David was uh, on the run for quite a while with a number of his men and followers. And so as they were running from King Saul, they, they came upon uh, this guy named Nabal. And he wasn't only a fool, uh, but he showed open contempt for the anointed king, David. So David's men, they were, they were hungry, they needed supplies, and they heard that this Nabal guy, he was shearing his sheep. Um, he was a really rich guy, so he had plenty of livestock, plenty of resources, and so they went to him to ask for help as they were on the lamb. So David sent some men, they find this guy, they tell him that David needs some food, and then here's Nabal's answer, and we can see this in 1 Samuel chapter 25. He, just, he says, who's David? Who's this son of Jesse? There are many servants these days that are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread? Shall I take my uh, water and my meat that I've killed from my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? And so this foolish guy, it wasn't just that he was just your run-of-the-mill, just didn't-get-it guy. He actually showed open contempt for God's anointed. And that's kind of what David's getting at here in Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. It's not just atheism. It's an open contempt and rejection of God, who he is and what he's done and what he says. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. But we all have this notion in our hearts. The idea that God's really of no importance, that his law doesn't really matter, that he's not really going to hold us accountable. We all tend to live as though there is no God. But look at what comes from that attitude as David continues, the end of verse 1 into verse 2 and 3. David, he, just, he takes this steamroller 
and he flattens all of us underneath this truth that we are corrupt, that we do abominable, abominable deeds, that there is none who does good. The Lord's looking down to see, is there anybody who gets it? Is there anybody who lives with wisdom? Is there anyone who understands? And he's like, no. They've all turned aside. They've become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. And the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3, he uses some of this passage to justify the truth that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we are all corrupt. We are all broken. We've all turned away from that identity, from that meaning and that purpose that God had in mind when he created us. And because we are corrupt, we do these abominable, like in other words, disgusting things. He's watching from his throne, seeing if anybody does good, if anyone lives with wisdom, but he's not seeing much. In our contempt for God, we have not called on him as we ought, We have turned aside. We do not seek him, but rather we seek to be God ourselves. So in other words, we could say the foolish says, I'm God. I call the shots. I define right and wrong. I define who I am and how I live. And in this, we're showing contempt for God's word. But at the same time, we expect others to follow us. We expect others to adopt our way of life, our definition of right and wrong. We demand to be celebrated for who we define ourselves to be. And so I imagine just this huge game of King of the Hill where we're all just climbing and clawing to get to the top. We're pushing other people down. We're trying to advance beyond everybody else, trying to be God. In that seventh grade hallway, we knew that those teachers hated what we were doing. We didn't care. We acted in those ways despite their desires, despite what they were hoping for for this young lady. And so here's Israel, this relatively small group of people living amidst all these nations who worship other gods and who hate the people of God. They're going to sing this song. They're going to start. These are the first three verses of this song. And they remind one another of the brokenness that they've seen in them and the brokenness that is around them. And so for us, it's a reminder again that our default setting is not to seek God, but to seek to be God. To roll our eyes at him and to live as though he doesn't exist. And if he does, he doesn't care. So if Kyle got up here in a few minutes and just led us in a song like this, would we agree with it? Would we need this reminder that God is watching all this stuff play out and is he seeing us playing this massive game of King of the Hill? Is he watching us and seeing, are we living with understanding? Are we living with wisdom? Are we living with this identity and purpose and meaning that God has given us? Or are we living based on our own definition of who we are, based on our own definition of right and wrong? What does that look like for you? Where is God calling you to seek him instead of seeking to be him? Where is he calling you to trust in who he's defined you to be? The meaning and the purpose that he's given you as one of his created and recreated children. But if our purpose in this life is to show the nations what it means to submit to and trust God, verse 4 shows us that this isn't going to be easy. 
So the second point this morning from verse 4. David is preparing his people to be devoured. They're lamenting together the reality that as the people of God, they are getting eaten up. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. Now, when you roll your eyes at somebody, they do not like that. They don't like being told through this very simple, almost, you know, you can miss it pretty easily, nonverbal communication that they are not worth your time, they're not worth your consideration, they're not worth submitting to, they're not worth the energy. What you're telling them as you roll your eyes is that they, in fact, are not God, and nobody really likes to hear that. And what's amazing about our God is that despite the contempt that we show, he has chosen us, he has called us out of this domain of darkness and into his kingdom. He has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So we're no longer citizens of this earthly kingdom playing this crazy game of king of the hill, but rather we are upright citizens of his kingdom. And we're now living here as exiles. We are awaiting our return to our home country. But while we are here, David is preparing his people. They're singing this song together to lament the fact that as they walk down this hallway of life, they're getting beat up. Like, this is not easy. The evildoers are devouring the people of God like they eat bread. They're taking their homes. They're taking their stuff. They're taking uh, even their lives. These evildoers, they do not call upon the Lord. They have no knowledge. They have no wisdom. And so from that, in their contempt for God, they harass and they devour and they destroy God's people. Why, Psalm 2 asks, why do the nations rage and plot against God's anointed? I think this psalm shows us that as the people of God who have been transferred from the domain of darkness, who have been removed from this crazy game of king of the hill, who have been brought into the kingdom of God, we no longer show contempt for God, right? We're now submitting ourselves to him and saying, no, you're right, I'm wrong. I'm not smart enough, I'm not holy enough to define right and wrong for myself. I am, if it were up to me how I would define my identity, it's nothing near as good as what you can give me. And so we've removed ourselves from that game by faith in Christ. And we see the people around us, they're still struggling with that. They're still struggling to find identity, meaning, and purpose. But we don't submit to the ways of the world. We don't bend the knee. In fact, we refuse to worship anybody but Christ. And now, as his people, as citizens of his kingdom, we represent the true king, Jesus Christ, and that is an incredible threat to the identity and the purpose and the meaning that everybody around us is trying to figure out on their own. And so, be prepared. We are going to be devoured, like many of our brothers and sisters around the world right now who are uh, facing extreme loss, loss of life, loss of freedom, and for us, we may get there again. We may be, that, that may impact us at some point. But for now, I know that there are people in this room that are facing cancellation. You're facing rejection. You're facing abandonment by family, friends, uh, coworkers, roommates, neighbors. 
Because by our very existence, we expose the world for their contempt of God. What we're doing right now, submitting to another king, coming under his word, is a big affront to the world that seeks to define right and wrong for themselves, that seeks to define identity for themselves. And that's what's going to get us canceled. That's what's going to get us devoured, is the fact that we do not submit to the ways of the world, but we found a better king. And so we're living amongst fools. And as recovering foolish people ourselves, we're trying to live with wisdom, we're trying to seek God, but we're living in a world that hates him. And so it doesn't matter what issue causes this, what's the flashpoint for it, but it's our submission to God and it's our contempt for the ways of the world that's going to come back and get us. And so where, where specifically are you feeling that pressure today? What are, what are some of the consequences that you face for rejecting the ways of the world? You might be like me in that seventh grade hallway and rather stepping up and saying something, you hit the lockers. Where are we afraid? Where are we fearful to show that we follow Christ? Because what the world is going to do to us is going to show us what we stand to lose if we do not live faithfully by their definition of right and wrong. And it's true, many of us, we have a lot to lose. But as we move into the end of this psalm, I want us to flip that focus on what we could lose as uh, an overflow of our faith or as an effect of following the king and focus on the opportunity. What's in front of us where we can see the glory of God play itself out in our community amidst the brokenness that's right about here and right around us. So let's look at the final three verses as we transition into the last part of this psalm. Look again at verses five and six here. David says, There they, those evildoers, they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the, of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. So as this song of mourning and this song of lament takes a turn, David is bringing the people of God to this amazing truth. First, that God is with the generation of the righteous. And second, this God is the refuge. So for Israel to be with God, to exist in his presence, was the pinnacle of their existence. And David is reminding them that even though they're being devoured, even though they're being eaten like bread, this God has not forsaken them. He is with them. He is with the righteous. As these evildoers, as they devour and as they destroy the people of God, flowing from that, that contempt they have for him. Israel is singing this song to remind themselves that they're, they're not alone, that God is their protector, that he will fight for them, he's going to guard them, he will ultimately keep them safe as they endure life in this broken world. And then we get into verse, verse 7. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. 
when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. How awesome would those words to, uh, be to sing at the end of that song? As you've reflected on all the pain and the suffering that you've endured for being the people of God, yet to know that salvation is coming. Zion is another name for Jerusalem, but it, this is focusing on God's presence the city where God himself dwells amongst his people. And they're reminding themselves that it's this God who is there. And out of Zion, out of the presence of God, because he is there with them, he will fight for them. And he's going to, as David says, he's going to restore the fortunes of his people. And so from that, Jacob, rejoice. From that, Israel, be glad. They're living this life in this hallway of abuse, and they're looking forward to that time when they can walk out those doors and they don't have to come back. When there's respite from the pain and the mocking and the suffering. Because our God does not abandon his people, amen? But rather he's with them, he protects them, he fights for them. He's not like those teachers who let my classmates endure the teasing and the bullying who are unable to do anything about it. But this God, he is with his people and he has acted on their behalf. He has fought for them and he continues to fight for them. He guards them and he continues to guard them. And as Israel is looking forward to this, we can look back with much more clarity than they had on what this God has done for this salvation to be realized. We are looking back to see what God has already done. Salvation has already come out of Zion that Jesus Christ came into the world to seek and to save the lost. Even though he was looking down from heaven and he saw this broken group of people battling one another out on the, the king of the hill, everybody trying to be God rather than seeking God, despite all that, this Jesus, he came to rescue his people. And every millisecond of his life was marked by praise and worship of his father. He never rolled his eyes at his dad. Not once. He never rolled his eyes at the law. In fact, he fulfilled it. He never sought to define himself or identify himself by anything other than who his father said he was. That doesn't mean he wasn't tempted. In Matthew 4, he was absolutely tempted. Satan tempted Jesus to join this game to forsake his father and to rule over all the kingdoms of the world by himself. But the good news for us is that unlike Adam and Eve who gave in to that deception and that temptation, Jesus remained perfectly faithful to his father in that moment. And what's amazing for us is that as we believe that by faith, as we trust that Jesus lived the perfect life, we actually get that righteousness. We become the generation of the righteous through faith in Christ Jesus. Even though for the vast majority of our lives we've lived with contempt, we've rolled our eyes at God, but through faith in Christ we receive his perfect worship, his perfect record of obedience, we have indeed been made righteous. But as Jesus walked the earth, he made it pretty clear that righteousness does not come from our own effort. He made it clear that defining right and wrong for ourselves hasn't really worked out very well for mankind. 
He made it clear that he was the son of God who truly has authority over the physical and over the spiritual. And they, they canceled them for it pretty brutally. The people that he had come to save, they condemned him to death. The Roman government, I mean, they at least hurt him a little bit, but they didn't really do much about it either. He was found guilty. He was scourged uh, with whips until his back was all torn up. They, they actually mocked him for saying that he was the king of the Jews. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They gave him a purple robe. Then they forced him to carry his own cross through the streets of Jerusalem and outside the city gates where they nailed him to the cross. Again, mocking him by putting a sign right above it that said, King of the Jews. So he had this firsthand experience of the depth of mankind's contempt for God and how quickly we are, uh, how capable and quickly we are to devour those who point out that we're not God, that we are corrupt. But in his mercy and through faith, we find forgiveness in the death of Christ. Not only are we made righteous and we have his perfect record of obedience, we are now forgiven we are now cleansed for our sins, from our sins, past, present, and future. All of that contempt, all of that eye-rolling, all of our corrupt and abominable deeds forgiven in full. Isn't that amazing? That's insane. I'm too dumb to make that up. But not only that, not only that, Jesus rises from the grave after three days, justifying us, giving us new life, and now what he's doing he is sitting at the right hand of his father, praying for us. He's interceding for us. And he truly is the bread of life who nourishes us, feeding us. Rather than being devoured, he now cares for us. He gives us what we need to endure and to find strength and energy to continue on. He is our righteousness. He is our forgiveness. And he is our life. Even when everybody around us, around us wants to take it. Not only that, it keeps going. Not only that, but there will be a day where Jesus once and for all says, enough. Enough. The Father will send him back. He will return to get his bride. He's going to come back for his people and he's going to make his enemies as his footstool. And he will reign over his people and all creation for all time. He's going to escort us safely to the new Jerusalem where we are going to be with him for all eternity. No more corruption. No more contempt. But rather, the joy and the gladness of being in the direct presence of Jesus Christ, our Savior. So as we feel that pressure, wherever that is today, as we're just wondering who's the next person in line to devour us and eat us like a piece of bread, we must look forward to what's to come. We must look forward to the gladness and the joy that is ours in the presence of Christ because I don't know how else we're going to do this. How else, how else are we going to stand amidst all this going on around us? So what does that, what does that look like for you? Let me give you 
uh, a little bit of an example. Remember our friend uh, Nabal from uh, earlier, the, the foolish guy? He had a wife uh, who, was, who was pretty great. Her name was Abigail. And when she heard how her foolish husband had treated King David, she was shocked and she was appalled. And quickly she put together a bunch of food uh, for David and his men. Uh, and, and they went to David. And as she got to him, she fell down on her face. And she bowed to the ground. And actually she said, let this guilt be upon me. Isn't that crazy? She honors David as the anointed king over Israel. And now we honor Christ, the descendant of King David, as the true king over his people. We bow the knee to Christ and we serve him and his people. So what does that look like again for you right now? Are we more interested in being served than we are in serving? Because we're going to really need one another. We're, we're really going to need one another. When, 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 they, the, when we're being devoured like pieces of bread, we cannot do that alone. We cannot face that alone. When somebody loses their job because of their faith, how are we going to respond? When someone loses contact with their family because they've been adopted into the family of God, how are we going to respond? These things might have already happened to you. They might be happening to you. But as we prepare ourselves for that reality, we can remember that salvation has come out of Zion in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. And now the opportunity is in front of us. Not only do we, we have the strength and the hope and the righteousness we need to continue on by faith, but at the same time, we got a front row seat to watch the Lord save more and more people who have shown contempt for him their whole lives, just like us. We know so many people in our lives who roll their eyes at God, who are still playing that brutal game of king of the hill, who are trying to identify and define themselves in ways that they see fit. In Christ, we can have the courage to say, enough. Let me introduce you to the Lord, to the Savior, to the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. May God have mercy on us and give us strength. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, as we lament and as we mourn the brokenness that we see in us and around us, Father God. Thank you for the reminder that you have sent salvation out of Zion for the glory of your name, for the joy of your people. I pray, Father, for all the hurting here, for all those who are facing the pressure, who are facing the suffering and the pain and the rejection that comes from being your child. I pray, Father God, that you give them such a great degree of joy in their heart, even today, even now, that they can endure, that they can have hope, that they can take part in your work to make more people righteous, to cleanse more of your people from their sin. Father God, use us in that amazing work. But Lord, we confess we are weak, and if left to ourselves, we're going to hit the lockers. We're going to stay off to the side. 
So, Father, give us courage, give us strength, and give us peace. In Jesus' name, amen.